Here we go. Get another great podcast, the Dave and Amber Show. And I'm I'm thrilled to have this guest for a lot of reasons. But Angela White is the easiest name I've had to pronounce since we started doing these damn things. So, you know, it's great to have somebody with a real name that's easy to pronounce. Angela, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here. Thanks to Amber as well. Well, and I want to say right off the bat that we had the pleasure of meeting Angela in person after corresponding for over a year via text messages and all these emails because you joined us for our San Diego happy hour. And so to meet you in like in person was awesome. And so thank you for taking the drive in to join us. Oh, I'll, I'll give, you a, give you a little backstory on that one. You know, we've been trying to reach each other. You reached out to me last year, but I was in a different place. So it didn't happen. And then when I finally reached out back to you, I hadn't heard anything from you. So when Cynthia connected with me, because Cynthia and I met years ago through a collaboration that Teachers College Columbia had with Diabetes Hands, where Cynthia used to um, work at the time. So when Cynthia reached me, reached out to me on LinkedIn, and then she invited me and she said, it's a far way. You don't have to come. We can connect another time. And then she said, but I'm meeting with Amber and Dave. And I'm like, Amber Clore. And she said, Amber Clore. And I'm like, okay, I booked my hotel the same time. And my plan is to be there. So I have to tell well, you. Now, now, who would have thought that Amber has such pull? Unbelievable. I'm lovable. That's what I mean. Yeah, there, there you go. I'm just saying, I said I wasn't able to reach her through all of these different mediums. I'm like, let me, let's see what's going to happen when she sees me face to face. So I was all anxious about it. And then I met you and, and it's like, you were the one who, I felt like you were the one who was trying to meet me. And yeah. I felt like, you know, I had to do all of this to meet you. So it was wonderful. Well, and right off the bat, whenever we were chatting, and I will say, and this is one of the things I really wanted to bring up was that we'll talk about your career path here in a second. But the fact that right off the bat, you told me about, as a person touched by diabetes, why you were in the profession that you're in. So can you share a little bit? Of, I mean, tell us why. Oh, absolutely. Well, for, I say I'm from Jamaica. And I, as I shared with you that I'm from a family of 15 siblings. I, yes, I have seven sisters and seven brothers, and I'm the youngest. So wow. like my, yes, yes, <laughs> I let that settle in. I know I, I was told that I drop it like a bomb and just keep going. So yes, 15 total. But those were the days that there, there was no um, government assistance. My dad was a large scale farmer. We lived on 10 acres of land. We had everything we needed. So my siblings are like my parent to me because I'm the youngest one. So there is one particular sibling that I grew up with. She was more like a mother to me and her name was Sonia. Well, when I was 19 years old, Sonia passed away from type 2 diabetes. Well, I don't even know what type. She passed away from diabetes, which wasn't diagnosed until post-mortem. Because when, yes, when I was a child, the only person, the only time I heard the name diabetes, it was in reference to a young man across the street that had type one diabetes. He was real thin and he was always inches away from, you know, passing out because that time insulin was scarce and the, the condition wasn't understood. I didn't know anyone that had type two diabetes. 
So when my sister, like she used to complain that she was thirsty or tired, or we used to tease her and tell her she's just trying to get out of not doing the chores. So she <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So the, so like I was the youngest one. I always was cleaning the house or helping her to cook. And, and then one day she left home and she said, you know what? It's way too noisy here. I'm going to go up in the hills like in a quieter part of town where her friends live. She was just going to go and rest. And she never came back home. Yeah. So at post-mortem, we were told she had diabetes. So all the signs at the time, because... Uh, how many years ago was that? Oh, my goodness. This, has been, this was when I was 19. I don't want to date myself, but I'm just going to say it's over 30 years. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, no, I mean, I'm not... I, w- I wasn't trying to date you, but I'm just kind of... Right. Our listeners, a time frame. So, okay. This, yes, over 30 years. But she has been to date the single most influential person in my life. So, I want to honor her memory. And so, that has inspired my path into becoming a diabetes educator. So, over the, when she died, the same year I went into college, I was going to major in nutrition because from my understanding, like diet plays such an important role. So that was going to be my entrance. When I went to college, I changed my mind and I did catering manage instead. I didn't want to do the nutrition, but I always knew that I would end up being in diabetes. So uh, many years later, I moved to the States. I had a restaurant in Corona. So because I was in the food service business and then I went into nursing because the what I needed to know, what my passion for being a diabetes educator, that has always been my focus. So I knew the path was through food and through nursing. So having had the catering, the food knowledge and nutrition part of it down, then I progressed to the nursing degree. So you yourself were then diagnosed, correct? Later. this I was diagnosed like maybe four years ago. So this was after I became a nurse and I became a certified diabetes, certified diabetes care and education specialist. That's when I received the diagnosis. Okay. Now, is there any other, besides your sister who passed, is there any other siblings that also have it? Yes, I have siblings. I have a sister. I have one brother so far that, you know, that shares the diagnosis because, as you know, having type 2 diabetes is still not a diagnosis that we readily accept. Because I have to tell you that when, even with all the work I do in diabetes and all the advocacy for my patients and for even people at risk trying to prevent diabetes, when I received my diagnosis, I was in denial for six months. For six months, I told no one. I was like, I did not want this to be a part of my story. I was just... Yeah, I, I was I was in shock. I was in denial. You know, I can share something with you because that's so common, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a really close friend, my neighbor, who diagnosed type 2 diabetes. I said to him, George, I will help you in any way you want. You know, I'm, I'm hooked up with the best educators, endos, whatever. It was like, gosh, it must have been three or four weeks later. There was some kind of family get together in his backyard. And I happened to mention to his daughter. I said, how's dad dealing with his diabetes? And she's like, what? Dad has diabetes? I didn't know this. 
Yeah. You know, and, and it is, it is almost, and I'm sure you run into this in your travels. It's not like we transmit the disease. No, no. But it's the stigma that it's because we are fat and lazy and, and don't eat right. No, it's the truth. That's the thing. With type 1 diabetes, it's, oh, it's not your fault. Let's just look at it from that end. It's not your fault. It's an autoimmune disease. You did nothing to get type 1 diabetes. But as type 2 diabetes, because there are modifiable risk factors, that's what the focus is on. So you could have eaten different to prevent it. You could have exercised more. And nobody looks at the fact that there's also a genetic factor in type 2 diabetes. When I was diagnosed, my A1C wasn't 10 or whatever. My A1C was 6.9. So that was, that was my diagnosis. The thing is, when you look at the risk factors for type 2 diabetes, which are not modifiable, you look at age. You pass a certain age, your, your beta cells are, you know, um, aging. Aging. Thank you. Yeah. That's the word I'm looking for. Your beta cells are aging. Then you look at the, the race, the, the family history. So for me, I have every single non-modifiable risk factor for diabetes. It was only a matter of time. In the Jamaican culture, and I don't know if that's the correct terminology, is mm-hmm. type 2 diabetes, is, are the numbers high? Very much so. Very much so. You know why, Amber? When I was growing up, we didn't have, say, all the fast food places. We didn't have fast food. But what we have is a dinner plate or a lunch plate or breakfast plate that has three, four, five carbs, very little vegetables and very little protein. Right. So that's our typical dinner plate. We will have rice, boiled bananas, boiled yam and boiled dumplings, all starch, all carb on a single dinner plate. So how did you then transform all of this stuff that you're doing mm-hmm. into your describe what, what this this my peeps is so our listeners could figure out, you know, how you got to that point? OK, so. Let me say, I got my associates in nursing, then I had my bachelor's. And then at the time I said, all right, this is it. I'm just going to go after my CDE. For, then I was leafing through some magazine one day and I saw a program about master's in diabetes education. Teachers College, Columbia University was offering a master's. And I thought to myself, how wonderful would that be? Because I have no, I know I would always want to further my education, but I did not want to have a master's in nursing. But here I am, a master's in diabetes. Oh, I was so excited because that's what I'm passionate about. And that would allow me to do more and have a, you know, a greater impact in um, diabetes interventions, not just locally, but internationally in other places like Jamaica or other um, developing countries where I would love to do work. So I uh, applied to Columbia and I and I got in and then one of the the fi- actually the requirements for the final project is you have to develop your own diabetes program. So during that time I was working in the native community. So what I got really fortunate with was to be a diabetes educator in Native American clinics on uh, reservations here in um, Southern California. And uh, yes, and I, and I had the opportunity to travel to lots of different states to their reservations as well. So I was passionate about wanting to educate people about how to take care of their loved ones. So not just to educate the patients, but to educate the people around them. So I, I got to researching about peer education. 
Because, you know, when when a person, say a type 2 person who has type 2 diabetes or maybe even type 1, you go to the doctor, you do labs, you get medication, and they tell you to come back in three months, right? Yep. Only if your insurance will pay for that three months, but go ahead. (laughs) Exactly. 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 Three months if you're lucky or if you're fortunate. You're right. You're right. So what is happening? What is happening to that person? in the three months, because this is not an acute illness, which is going to be cured in three months. This is a diagnosis, which you're going to live with for the rest of your life. And the care that you provide to yourself is going to determine how well you live for the rest of your life. So that's why I was listening to the interview with Alex and I was just like shaking my head because he's in a first world country. He's in, he's in Europe and that's the care he got. Can you imagine what's happening in the countries that don't have resources like that. Oh, for sure. And I have to ask you right off the bat, just because coming living in Oklahoma and the Native American culture here, it, 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 I just went to the First American Museum and we talk about cultural things. When you look at your program, do you, because we're looking at different diets because of culture, gear your program specifically to the country or the demographic, knowing that they might not have access to things or... Oh, absolutely. Oh, Amber, that's a fantastic question. because. When I started as a diabetes educator, I remember being placed with another diabetes educator who I was supposed to follow for two weeks. This person would see a patient and she would sit down and she would say, and so you have diabetes and I'm going to need you to eat so-and-so and you're going to eat two this and you're going to do that and you're going to do that. And I thought to myself, how do you know that person has access to what you're asking them? Well, and, and, and the other thing is, how could you be so presumptuous? Exactly. But, that, but that's what's happening, Dave. That is what's happening. And that is, what a lot, that is why a lot of patients, not say a lot of persons living with diabetes are failing at taking care of themselves because they're not given the, the right treatment and the right education. Because you have to find out the resources that someone, you know, is available to someone. You can tell me to eat fish and chicken if you don't know that I'm able to, to access fish and chicken. You, I, I sit down and I talk with my, you know, whoever I'm giving the education to, my patients, my colleague, whoever, and I do an assessment. I find out what, what their lifestyle is, what their cultural, um, you know, what indicates indications from their culture. Because you're not going to teach someone to eat something that they do not eat or in, in ways that they do not cook or even the resources if they're not available to it. On some of these reservations, the closest grocery store is miles away and you're teaching someone who, is not, who doesn't have a car, right? So, so to go back to your, your question, Amber, diabetes education, diabetes self-management education must be individualized to the patient, must be individualized to the person. You have to know what they are able to do for themselves, and then you can tailor your education to meet that need. I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit, because I, I happen to agree with you that, you know, but it's a numbers game. Mm-hmm. So there are... Okay, uh, what's the latest number? 40 million diabetics? I don't know. I think it's like 40 million in the United States. There's 400, I believe 400 million worldwide. I might be off by a million or two. You're right. If I, again, now my my math may not be correct. If I remember right, there are less than 50,000 CDEs. Right. Okay. So doing the simple math there, 
as much as we want that individual one-on-one, that's hard. There just aren't enough of you. Right. And that's where my program comes in. That's where my program comes in. Hence the intro here. So, <laughs> there you go, Thank you so much. That is my You know, I'm not as dumb as I look. So tell us about this program. So all of what I said, and you just narrowed it down. Thank you so much. Us Jamaicans are storytellers. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Podcast. We love it. So this is it now. So having to come up with a program, what I thought about it, is the need for diabetes education to be at the point where the regular folk, the folks with diabetes can reach it. Someone at church, someone in their home, someone at the grocery store, just about anybody, peer educators in the community have been found to be even more effective at providing education than that one hour or 30 minutes or sometimes 20 minutes, as Kalex had said, he got like 20 minutes of education. If you can place peer educators all through the community, that's going to be way more effective at helping persons living with diabetes to make the decisions they need to make at the point where they need to make them. Well, and your program is called PEEPS. And so I was reading about it. And so it's peers, educating, empowering, and providing support. And I think it's brilliant. Just so I'm clear. Yes. And it's the afternoon, thank God. So, uh, you know, I've had coffee and I think I'm clear by now. And I haven't started drinking yet. So that's good. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's five o'clock somewhere. <laughs> do you train the peer and then let them do their job? Absolutely. But and still provide support. So the website still has continuing support for the peers. What is the URL for that website? This is your perfect shot. It's shameless self-promotion. BeMyPeeps.org. Now, I want to change the subject a little bit because what you're doing is awesome and it's great. But, you know, we have a lot of listeners that, you know, they themselves either are type twos or there's somebody who's touched by diabetes. Can you kind of share with them, like, what's, I think there's a lot of, you know, you mentioned before there, I don't want to, I don't know if I would call there shame in having diabetes, but a lot of these people are, they're afraid to ask. Can you explain how common that is to be afraid and, and not to be afraid, I guess? Yes. Yeah. Another great segue into that because you know what? It's a stigma we talk about. It's that shame that because the, the risk factors are modified, because you are able to control or manage your diabetes with diet and with exercise in addition to your medication. And so if you're not in that place where you can put in those hours or minutes to exercise or you can modify that diet, then you are judged. So when you tell somebody you have type 2 diabetes, it's like saying, I failed at being a healthy person. So this has been the message. And it's also the way you're treated in the healthcare system, right? So when you go in to the doctor and you say, and your A1C didn't go down, instead it went up. You're looked at again like, why aren't you able to do this? It's like a slap on the hand. So you feel, if you don't think you're doing something right, then you're ashamed to ask because so much stigma and so much blame is attached to a person who has type 2 diabetes. Well, you know, it, you know, what you're saying is very, I, I often talk about how the business of diabetes interferes with the management because I've, I've seen how these doctors operate and 
I don't, I'm not blaming a doctor, but they only have so much time. Typically what happens is, you know, what do they do? You know, you get in the office, they take your blood pressure, they weigh you. Hopefully you've had labs before you walk in there and they only have so much time. So they, you know, instead of being, you know, you'd like them to have a teaching moment, but even the doctors would tell you they're not paid to do that. That's true. But funny saying that, Dave, because even in the sense that I used to work and this, my, I see my patients, my patients come in, they have seen the doctor, right? They will come in and get treated for a UTI. And the doctor did not look at their A1C. You understand? So I'm, so, so I'm, running, I'm running reports and I see a patient that has an A1C of 11 or 10. And they had a visit last week for a UTI that they were treated with and sent home. And we're talk about that. And nobody talked to them about their diabetes. So that's a lot of things. So what you find out is that persons with type 2 diabetes mostly go to the doctor when they have an acute, you know, when they have an acute illness. And that illness will be treated and they're sent home with high blood, high blood sugars. So that's, a, that's another aspect of it, too, where a lot of persons with type, one di- type 2 diabetes, especially, are just not getting the kind of care and not being given the opportunity to have better outcomes for their health. Well, it's like they slap a Band-Aid on it. They're like, here's a pill or here's something right there. And and it's not going to fix the problem. Let's address the problem at hand, which is that you don't know that you, A, have diabetes or two, you don't know how to manage it. And with that being said, you're not even given the opportunity to see a certified diabetes educator or whatever we're calling it now. And even if you are able to, your insurance is probably not going to cover it. Exactly. I'm like, let's talk about preventative health for the love of God. Save some money. Yes, absolutely true. Okay, so Angela, I'm going to give you a great wrap here because what you're doing is awesome. Okay, so this is a great platform. Give people three pieces of advice, just three. Okay, I like to keep things simple, but and it could be, and I guess what I would say, frame this as somebody who's a type two and the people who they're touching, whether it be their life, their wife, their coworkers. What three pieces of advice would you give them? Okay, so I would say first thing, know your numbers. A lot of people will tell me they have diabetes. And my first question is, what is your A1C? They're like, what? They don't know that. Mine too. My first question. Yep, go ahead. (laughs) Absolutely. What is your A1C? Just because that is the the basis on which you're going to say the next sentence, right? So know your numbers. Your A1C is not information for your doctor only. That's for you because that is what you're going to take and know how to make your decisions, right? So that's the thing. Know your numbers. Know your A1C. Know your blood sugars. Know your your blood pressure. Know what is happening with your kidneys because uh, your diabetes affects your kidneys. So you want to know that. You want to know what, are you getting a medication to protect your heart? Are you getting a medication to protect your kidneys? So that's one. The the second thing is diabetes is not a death sentence. It's just a wake-up call. I have had many patients who that diagnosis turned their life around, head to the gym, they get their numbers down. You have to have that information. You have to know your health so that you can make better choices. But it's not a death sentence because I don't intend to live like there's a death sentence over um, above my head. I'm living my best life with diabetes. The third thing is, and this one I'm going to be a little selfish because it's my pet peeve, 
It's the I am a diabetic, the diabetic diabetic. Do, diabetic does not define you. You are a person living with diabetes. So I don't even use the term diabetic anymore, right? Because that's saying this is someone who every decision that's made is based off of the fact that they have diabetes. You are someone living with diabetes and living well with diabetes. So you go to a party. You don't have to say, I can't go to the birthday party or I cannot eat cake. You can. You just need to say to a friend, let's share that slice of cake. Okay. You can eat at in and out You can eat any meal you want to. Diabetes doesn't mean you have to take away everything that's tasty out of your life. In moderation, I eat everything. I eat pizza. I eat burger. I eat it all in moderation, right? I hope it's really good Chicago deep dish pizza. I knew something was going to come from that. It sure (laughs) is. I'm like I told Amber, I expect to be hosting the next happy hour. Yeah. All right. There we go. Yes, it's it's official. I am a foodie. I love to cook. I love to eat. And diabetes doesn't damper that. And my A1C is still below seven. Absolutely. All right. Well, listen, Angela, you've been an absolutely wonderful guest. You know, and along with all of our podcast guests, I'm hoping that you're going to submit a blog for us. We've got it going. We're excited. It was a pleasure having you. It was a pleasure to be a part of your, as Talek said, your award-winning show. Thank you for having me. (laughs) 